Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler, a General Practitioner, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr Dan Exeter about exercise and children, how much is too much. Dr Dan Exeter is a sports physician at Axis Sports Medicine in Auckland. He is the Medical Director for Athletics New Zealand and was one of the doctors with the New Zealand team at the 2016 Rio Olympic Games. He also has a senior lecturer role at the University of Auckland. Welcome, Dan. Morning, Louise. So, Dan, what are the current exercise guidelines for children? Louise, our Ministry of Health guidelines are, are very clear. So for our kids starting at five and, and working their way up towards their adolescent and late teenage years, we're trying to get them to accumulate about an hour of moderate to vigorous activity throughout the day. And, and as I said, that's an accumulation. doesn't have to be all at once. Um, but trying to get that hour out. And it's, and it's physical activity, so it's not necessarily organised sport, it's, it's running around, it's playing, it's doing things that are active. Um, and what they go on to say is that we're trying to incorporate vigorous physical activity and activities that strengthen muscles and bones at least three days a week. And if you take some science and apply it to that, that means things like jumping-based activities, because that's what stimulates bones, uh, and what stimulates muscles is very similar to that as well. But it's pretty easy to see how you can do that in our sort of classic Kiwi kids lifestyle with uh, just running around, playing on the tramp, playing down at the local park, playing at lunch times and, and break times at school. And I think the important thing about it is that you can accumulate the hour and it doesn't need to be in formal organised sport. The, the concept of what we call free play is really, really important for that age group. So at what point does exercise become harmful, Dan? So is it the same exercise, too much exercise? Yeah, there's some really important uh, times or reference points when exercise does cross that threshold from being great for our kids and not just great physically, but also great academically um, and and in a variety of ways, psychologically as well, to being problematic. The first is when their total amount of formal organised training exceeds 16 hours and that's not just necessarily in one sport but when they're training or competing in sport more than 16 hours we see an increase in their injury risk. So the relationship between time spent training and injury is relatively linear until you get to that 16 hour mark and then it really jumps. The other time we see sport being potentially harmful is when we see this concept of early specialisation. So that means focusing on one sport, but too early in the maturation cycle. And early is defined anywhere between before the ages of 12 to 14. So basically uh, the pre-pubertal window. And the other time an exercise can become harmful, not because exercise itself is bad, is just around the pubertal growth spurt. And so there's a concept called peak height velocity, which for a young lady is around the age of 11 and a half and for a young man is around the age of 13 and a half. And that's the time when their rate of, of growth, so the, their change in height, is greater than any other time in their growth with the exception of the time they were born to the age of one year. Um, and so when I'm talking to uh, athletes and, and kids and their parents about it, I use the analogy of building a brick wall and I say that's the time when you're building that wall really, really, really fast and so we've got to be, we've got to allow that brick wall a little bit more time to get set. 
we don't want to go up to every day and shake it as much because we're building the ball with the wall really rapidly um, so the, the other the other three key things over the 16 hours specializing too early and just taking care around that time of rapid uh, rapid limb growth so it sounds like variety is important should we be advising particular types of sports I think the most important thing is some variety um, and generally when you look at that that does mean that kids will get a, a broad range of what they need to do we know that weight-bearing impact sports are important for uh, developing bones and giving bone stimulus and that's really important particularly for our female athletes we know that um, your peak bone mass most of your peak bone mass is important and there's obviously the physical and the dietary components um, to that but um, yeah, look, if, we, if we're thinking about what we should be asking our kids to do, particularly before the age of 13 to 14, it's play lots of sports. Um, and I think we're going to touch on this later. That's not only good for them, but in terms of success, it may also be good for me. And what I'm saying is that you don't necessarily need to start focusing on one sport really, really early if you have a vision of being successful in that sport. I'm starting to see children in the gym. At what point would we advise children to be doing the gym work? So our, our concerns around kids lifting weights has been traditionally from a thought that growth plate injuries uh, may occur in that age group we've just talked about, um, where kids are rapidly growing uh, and that weight training might cause that. And we've, we've moved away from thinking that there really isn't the evidence to support that. And there may be a small amount of evidence to say that actually when kids are going through that pubertal growth spurt, when they're getting these huge hormone rises which have an effect on bone and muscle and other connective tissues, that perhaps resistance training could be useful for them. But what I think we need to remember here is that in that period of, of pubertal growth, kids often go from having their childhood movement patterns to becoming, as all of us have seen her parents, kind of like gangly unbroken colts or giraffes, baby giraffes, their legs and arms are everywhere. So I think in that pubertal growth spurt window, what we're really trying to do is rehone what we call their movement competencies. How do they squat, land, jump, change direction? And you can cautiously introduce initially some, some body weight based resistance training around that time. So it's not so much about physiologically saying what, what we should do sort of from a performance or, or, or a gains point of view. It's about recognizing what's happening at that stage of their life and trying to work through that and then layering on things after that. So while we, we're not so concerned about the, the kids in that 12 to 14 age group doing things in the gym, it doesn't make sense to put them there at that time because what their goal should be, should be being able to move properly. And they may have gained some of those skills when they were younger, but they may lose them as their limb growth changes and they have to readapt then you can start to think about introducing some body weight based resistance training initially once they've regained those competencies and then you can start to layer on what we would consider the traditional gym strengthening which really means that we're not really expecting to see kids in the gym until after their pubertal growth spurt uh, and you know for, for, for young men that's you know, for 15, 16 and for young ladies that may be a little bit earlier the key thing and the key message I think for listeners is that this has really got to be done under quality supervision. That's the thing. Um, 
letting our young teenagers loose in a gym uh, without any training uh, or ticking those prerequisites, i.e. having good movement competencies, that is what's dangerous, not because we think it's going to injure their, injure their growth plate, uh, but because it's just not the right thing for them, it's not what they should be focusing on, and it comes with other harms as well. Um, and actually they don't need it, that's the other thing to say, is they don't need it at that time. So we are a little less concerned, I guess, than we perhaps used to be, and we, we in the, under, the importance of resistance training is there, but it's getting through those milestones first, and if you follow that appropriately and allow for the changes that occur during the pubertal growth spurt, um, it means that chronologically they're not really going to end up in the gym um, until they're sort of mid-teens and that's probably when it's appropriate for the vast majority of our kids. Uh, so Dan, early, let's talk a little bit more about early specialisation. Is this recommended for children? The short answer is no. So what we know about early specialisation and what we're talking about is choosing a single sport before the ages of 12 to 14. So choosing a single sport, spending more than eight months a year just training for that sport, or most pertinently, cutting out other, other sports so that you can just focus on one. The other big three questions around early specialisation. The broad answer is no, that that's not helpful. And not only is it potentially harmful, and I'll go on to talk about this, but also it appears that it may not actually be helpful. And there's some good anecdotal evidence around this as well as some research evidence. So you'll often hear uh, people, even in sports like tennis, talking about the other competencies they learned in other sports being really helpful. Novak Djokovic talks about the fact that he thinks his skiing background helps him with his movement on the court. Uh, there are a number of other examples out, this, out there that, that athletes have shared, and it's backed up by what we see in the literature. And so with the exception of, of rhythmic gymnastics, there's no evidence to suggest that choosing a single sport before that 12 to 14 age window increases your chances of being successful. And there's actually a lot of evidence to suggest that it might be detrimental from a success point of view. So keeping a nice broad range of sports available to you and then when you get to 14, 15, then you might choose the sport that, uh, that you want to do. So it doesn't look like it helps if you are trying to be particularly successful. And then on top of that, we know that it causes harm. So we, we know that there are a few indices of early specialization that we can look at, and they're often really easy to assess. And so if you've got a child who is spending more hours, of, more hours training than their chronological age, we know that increases their risk of overuse injuries. We know that if a child spends uh, has a ratio of organized sport hours to free play hours greater than two to one, so spending more than twice the amount of time they spend just running around having fun and formal training, their risk of overuse injuries goes up. Um, and we know that children who early specialize, and the degree of early specialization can be quantified, but children who are defined as, as early specialized are more likely to be represented in overuse injury cohorts. So we know that not only is it probably not a good thing if you want to have a successful sporting career, if that's what your aim is, and for some of our kids that is, it's also clearly a bad thing for them. So we shouldn't be recommending it, and um, the evidence to support it is, is scant. As I said, we only really see that it 
might be helpful in rhythmic gymnastics. Um, and it's really good to hear athletes come out, particularly in sports like tennis, where I think people think there's an idea that you need to do that and say, well, look, hey, I did lots of sports when I was younger and I only focused on tennis later, for example. So with that, Dan, are there particular categories of sport we should be pushing our children to do to get that variety? Because I said before, I think it's really um, important to make sure that there's running and jumping and changing direction in our kids' lives. So variety is important, but if that variety was only cycling and swimming, you would be missing a, a big element of what we need what we need to do. Uh, as I said before, around that pubertal growth spurt, we get a window where kids' bodies are potentially more sensitive to load. They've got these huge hormonal surges, and we we want to maximise the gains there. And we can do that without putting them at risk by making sure that there's some running and jumping and changing direction activity in their lives. Um, and generally, if you if you look at what what most Kiwi kids have access to, they're going to do those things as well. So the only time I think that variety could get you into trouble would be if that variety didn't include any any impact based activity. Um, but there's not too many kids who only cycle and swim or only do non weight bearing sports. And the stress and overuse injuries that you're seeing in children, what do these look like? The ones that always jump out are the posterior element injuries of the spine, so an area of the spine we call the pars interarticularis, so uh, behind the spinal canal where the superior and inferior facets intersect, uh, as the name would suggest. And we see that in sports where you have to extend your back a lot. Gymnastics is the classic one, springboard diving, dancing, and what we're seeing as I had a real explosion here is cheerleading, where you've got lots of hyperextension, big training hours, uh, and a, you know a very long season with some international exposure as well. Uh, we see overuse disc injuries in our young rowers, and they are susceptible to enormous loads uh, in New Zealand. We see similar overuse injuries in the, in the shoulders of our swimmers. Uh, we, de- we do see uh, bone overload injuries in the lower limbs of our running sport athletes and our, and our dedicated runners. And then again in our gymnastics population, we see, we see wrist injuries. We're also starting to develop some evidence that perhaps too much change of direction weight-bearing sport in that pubertal growth spurt may be a factor that leads to the change in the shape of the ball and socket joint at the hip and that may then go on to lead to some issues for the hip down the line whether that be damage to the cartilage or premature arthritis in the hip. So we haven't joined all those dots together quite just yet for the hip but there's just been some evidence to suggest that maybe why that ball and socket change may occur where instead of the ball looking more like a sphere it starts to more look more like a, a rugby ball shape or an oval shape so that area is still um, an area where people are investigating things we don't have all that information just yet. I was wondering too about foot injuries I seem to be seeing a lot of foot strain in young children playing on turf have you seen that in your practice? Yeah there's some really really interesting uh, data about the interaction between the shoes and the and the, and the uh, boots that kids wear and, and turf, um, and it's an example of one of the challenges we face in, in sport and exercise medicine because sometimes what's really good for performance may not necessarily be good for injury, and so one of the concerns might 
it is sometimes that uh, in terms of rotational stability that turf may be too grippy and so you get the interaction between a very grippy shoe and a very grippy turf and that doesn't uh, allow any give. Now that's great for performance because you don't lose any energy when you change direction but it's not necessarily great uh, for injury um, and there's been a lot of work in this um, in Australian rules football but increasing amounts of work being done in, in American sports where uh, in, the, in the NFL for example they'll have some grounds where they play on grass and some grounds where they play on turf um, and there's been some trends towards seeing increased risks of injury uh, on turf. And this has been such a concern that actually prior to uh, one of the recent uh, FIFA Women's World Cups, there was con some concern from the female athletes that by being asked to play on turf, they were actually being put at higher risk of injury. So that research again in that area is, is developing. I think it's a difficult one if you think about it though, because if we want our kids to be active, we live in Auckland and it rains and our games are being washed out and we've got you know we're running out of space because we're taking up green space to build houses is it better to have turfs and allow more kids to play sport and accept a slightly higher injury risk if that's there or are we better to have grass fields they can't use and I think um, generally like everything we're saying for the vast majority of people who are taking a sensible approach to sport we want our kids to play sport we want our kids to be active so things that help encourage that like having better quality fields are probably on the whole a good thing um, so we, we do have to get that, that balance right every time we look at the pros and cons of a, of a field that we can use more often. And then just briefly talking about footwear and turf, sprigged shoes or turf shoes? I see both on the turf. What's the best? Well, it depends, it depends about the length of the turf really because um, you know modern turfs now are, are designed to be uh, to use a more traditional boot on. So uh, not what some of our uh, older listeners might remember with their very, very, very long uh, rugby sprigs. Um, but that, that molded uh, that molded footwear often will be, uh, will be right for a turf and, and people will find that the turf shoe, which you know, first came into prominence when touch sort of took off, probably won't give them the traction that they want. Um, but again, I think at, at, at a kid's level, it's it's not too critical, but the turf that we're seeing rolled out to be to, to play football and rugby and, and uh, things on, they're generally designed for the the football boot, um, but they've changed a lot over the years as well. Great, thanks for that. So we have a child that we think has an overuse injury. How do we diagnose this, and what investigations do we request? It's like all of medicine it's a it's a history it's a clinical examination and then um, we may need some imaging but when it comes to the history there's certain sports that just straight away will will make me worry about an overuse injury so if i see a young gymnast uh, with back pain i'm worried that they've got a stress fracture in their back until i've proven otherwise um, and that's really where your antennae start to go up. Once you've worked your way through history and examination, as I, and as I said, there's some really good questions you can ask to work out how much they're training. So you can ask them to total up their training hours. You can ask them questions about how long they uh, train 
per year in that sport, as I said, more than eight months in one sport is thought to be a risk. And you can ask them if they've given up other sports just to pursue that sport. And so you start to build up a bank where you're thinking, right, has this kid got an overuse type injury? It's a bit confusing here sometimes because of ACC and everybody thinks that they've probably had an acute injury. But if you take a careful history, most people will tell you exactly what's happened. And then once you've got that picture, you're you're almost halfway there because as I said, if you have a young cricket fast bowler or a young gymnast or a young cheerleader with back pain, you're already thinking about a bone stress injury. Um, if you have a young gymnast with wrist pain, you're already thinking about uh, a radial growth plate overuse injury. Um, if you have a young rower with back pain, you're already thinking about a disc injury. And so that leads you nicely into your examination. And then generally imaging beyond that just depends on what you need because sometimes like everything you have enough information but um, in this day and age we increasingly use uh, MRI scans when we need to um, you won't see the posterior element injuries um, in the lumbar spine on most uh, on most x-rays uh, so you'll need an MRI imaging for that uh, you will see things such as growth plate changes in the wrist of the gymnast very clearly on plain films and that's and that's all you need um, but like everything in medicine, you're guided by what you've got from your history and your examination. Um, the key part of that assessment is, is risk stratifying the patient. And as I said, in my practice, when I pick up the referral and I read that I've got a 11-year-old uh, gymnast, I always assume, therefore, they'll be training big hours. And when I read they've got back pain, I spend the rest of the consultation convincing myself that they don't need an MRI scan because generally... If, I, if that's all the information that I would, I would have, I will be assuming that they have a stress injury to their back. GPs love red flags. What are the red flags when it comes to these sorts of injuries? The big red flag is, is the, the training loads and those early specialisation features we, we talked about. Uh, I think by the nature of what those, some of those sports ask their kids to do, that the type of sport that child is playing is a red flag in of itself. As I said, and I'll go back and I'm not trying to bag gymnastics but it's an easy example if you have a 10 or 11 year old female gymnast um, who comes in with back pain that sentence in itself is a red flag so it's the it's the combination of their age and stage and the sport that they're doing um, that really is the thing that gets you gets you going um, but there's some other features in the history that make me start to worry we hear a lot of parents talk about sort of enabling, being enablers for their kids rather than advocates for their kids. So if I hear from the parents that I'm getting a sense that there's a loss of control, so phrases like her coach won't let her stop or his coach says he has to train this week or I don't really feel I can have an impact on what my kid's doing, then I start to worry because that suggests that there's no one helping to control this kid's load. Specifically in football in New Zealand, we have, a, we have an issue because we have so many pathways for our kids. And so I grew up in, in the regions, and if you played sport, you played for your school, and if you're good enough, you played reps, and that was the end of the season. But in Auckland, uh, we have kids who play for their school. They play at, for a club, possibly at two levels, age grade and, and maybe another age grade or senior level. And they might be part of an academy pathway. But there's no one who oversees that total load. And these kids are the good kids, and so everyone wants a piece of them. So that's another red flag. If they've got multiple teams they're playing for, it just means it's harder to keep an eye on that load. And then 
If we think about some clinical factors, if they're getting pain outside of the sporting environment, that always worries me. If they're getting pain at night, that worries me. And I hate hearing stories that kids are limping. I've, I've seen people who've had their kids limping for a month and haven't done anything about it. So they are the examination findings that make you worry. And as we talked about before, um, you know, age and stage is important. So it's age and stage, getting a sense on how much they're doing, getting a sense that perhaps there's no one who has a sense of control about how much they're doing, and then pain outside of sport, night pain uh, and limping. But most of them are really sort of historical factors rather than key examination findings. And by the time I've got to the end of my history taking, I'm almost certain what I need to do next. And there's not many things that will dissuade me my examination findings from taking the pathway I thought I was going to take by the time I've taken my history. So a child with red flags needs referral. What other things would make us refer to someone like you early on? Every time I talk to general practitioners, I say one of the things I'm really lucky that I've got is time. And increasingly these days, we're trying to fight people's misconceptions. There's a lot of information out there about everything, and some people deliver that in, in ways that people find more accessible, whether that be social media or because they're just make more charismatic than perhaps we are as doctors. And so if you just don't get a sense that you're getting through to the people you're dealing with, then that in itself should be a referral. And lots of times, as I said, in these young athletes, it's because people just haven't got it. They haven't understood. They don't recognize that what they're doing is harmful. And people are trying to do the best things for their kids, by and large. But sometimes they just need the education to understand that what they're doing is not, not only potentially not helpful, as we talked about earlier, early specialisation may not help success, but also, also potentially detrimental. Um, and sometimes that requires more than, than the average GP consultation will allow, and we all recognise that. So my advice to referrers is, is that you see your red flags and that's great, we'll see them, but one of the red flags is, I don't think I've got through to this 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 parent usually. Um, there's no point trying to convince the kids. Um, you know, kids who are in trouble at these ages don't take themselves to and from training. And I say that to lots of parents who say, look, oh, but my kid wants to go, my kid has to train, my kid wants to train. I say, well, but how do they get there? They get there because you take them, so you are in control. And so some parents need to be talked down and told that what they're doing is not right, but some parents need to be empowered to have the confidence to say, this is your kid, I know you're trying to do the right thing, you need to go and talk to the coach and say, this is too much, and if you're not happy to do that, then I will be your advocate, and I think that's really important. So just to conclude the podcast today, Dan, what would your top take-home messages be for our listeners? Yeah, so one of, my, uh, one of my colleagues who taught me most of what I know says that we should always just have five key things. So I've got five take-home points. The first is that exercise is great for kids. So for the vast majority of our kids in the society in which we live in, we should be encouraging them to exercise. Number two is don't forget the role of play. Play is really important. It's, it's dynamic. It's different. It's varied. It's great. Number three is taking care with the, the volume or what we call the load of organized sport, especially around these times of peak height velocity. So that's 11 and a half for our young ladies and about 13 and a half for our young boys. When you're building that brick wall more quickly, you can't shake that brick wall to the same degree and expect it to hold up. Number four is that 
this concept of early specialization so choosing a single sport or spending more than eight months in one sport or excluding other sports so you focus on one before the ages of about 12 to 14 is not only bad because it may increase well, because it does increase the risk of overuse injuries but it also might not be helpful if you have this desire for your kid to be highly successful in sport and the final one is that kids aren't little adults so kids get their own child specific injuries and they don't just get kid variations on adult injuries so when an adult might injure a tendon the risk area for a child with a similar sort of uh, risk risk related injury or risk related activity could be their growth plate rather than the tendon and because of the age that these injuries can be acquired they can have long lasting consequences it's their bony skeleton and the growth plates that are the vulnerable areas in the kids so remember that kids are not just little versions of big people thank you dan it's been a pleasure talking to you today if you're a new zealand gp and would like to claim cpd points for listening to this podcast please fill in the reflection of learning form found at goodfellowunit.org Thank you for listening.